are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Good morning. It's good to see you today. When I asked the Lord for the fire to fall this morning, I had no idea how he would answer that prayer, but he, he has done that. It is always a privilege to be back here in uh, not only our home church, but the church that we served for those seven years that we had the privilege of being here. And Pastor Rick and I were talking a few months ago, and he said, you know, every time I ask you to preach, I'm, I'm always out of town, so I don't get to be there when you're there to preach. So let's figure out a time when I am here when you can come. And so we set this date a few months ago and as a way to kind of conclude this series in Defining Moments. And he said, I want you to focus specifically on the idea of, of the holy life. So I want to start there simply by saying that a part of my regular routine right now and has been for many years is a daily devotional guide that's called Seedbed. And a few weeks ago, it referenced a research project from 2011, 2011 that was conducted by George Barna and Barna claims that this particular research project was one of the most challenging that he has ever undertook. What they did was over a period of six years, his organization made telephone contacts to over 15,000 people. And they were asking them questions about their spiritual life, about their, their faith formation, about their discipleship. And they were trying to determine where are people today in North America in, in their walk with God. And the results were astonishing. Because Barna found from his research that people tend to find themselves at, at one or another of what he called ten transformational stops. And he used the word stops carefully because he's talking about the, the journey. Sometimes it's not linear, the journey, but he was talking about the journey of faith of somebody coming to Christ all the way to the point of full consecration to God. Take a look at what he discovered were the ten transformational stops. First of all, number one, unaware of sin. Number two, indifferent to sin. Number three, worried about sin. Number four, forgiven by sin. Now let's stop here for just a second. So he's talking about here's the journey between someone's uh, first awareness of how the Holy Spirit is working in their lives to, to making them aware of their condition and then by his provenient grace, God coming and helping them to move from indifference to being concerned and then to be forgiven. And then number five, forgiven and active in church. So you could say that right here in these first five from Barna, he's talking about where people are in North America in their journey to faith and the beginning, you could say, of discipleship. They're beginning of a movement toward Christ-likeness. But there's more transformational stops. Look at the next six, the next five. Number six, holy discontent. What does that mean? It means that once God gets a hold of you, he begins to rearrange your life. That yes, when you're saved, that there's something transformational happens, but that's just a beginning point. God at that point is rearranging who you are. He's dismantling an old way and he's reestablishing a new way. And he gives you discontentment. You're not satisfied with the way your life has been. Number seven, broken by God. I interpret Barna to mean by that, that that's the moment where you just, where you finally say God brings you to the end of yourself. 
He brings you to the end of your self-will and what your desires has been. And finally, then number eight, we come to the moment of surrender and submission to God. And then number nine, profound love for God. And finally, number ten, profound love for people. These, according to Barna, were the categories of the transformational stops of, sp of people's spiritual lives in, in North America. But here's where it gets interesting. I want you to see how the percentages break down for Barna in where people are out of those 15,000 plus. First of all, unaware of sin. 1% of people. 1% of the people said they had no awareness of any kind of a, 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 a sin condition in their life. Number two indifferent to sin, 16%. They just, they knew that maybe they had a sinful life, but they just didn't care that much. Number three, worried about sin, 39% of the people were, were concerned about the way their life was going. And number four, 9% of the people experienced forgiveness of, of their sins and finally forgiven and active in church. I think that one is 24%. It's going to come up in just a second. But these are people who have begun their journey with Christ, and now they're active in church. So you could say, in some sense, this is the beginning of their discipleship. But now take a look at the last half, the, the holy discontent, the people who feel like I'm not satisfied with where I am spiritually. Six percent of the people, number, number seven, broken by God at the, coming to the end of themselves, three percent. Surrender and submission, finally saying, God, I'm just going to give you everything I have, and, I, and I'm, I'm tired of trying to be my own owner. I, I want to give control of my life completely over to you. I don't want to just be forgiven of sin, but I want to have complete control of the Spirit. 1% of the, of the population. And then finally, profound love for God, 0.5, that's a point, 0.5%, and profound love for people, point. 5%. Now let's keep that up there for a second. I'm not all that surprised to find out that basically most of the percentage of people are up here. In fact, let's go ahead and look at the next slide. You see the break in the middle and the next slide moves on to show us what the percentages look like. I'm not that surprised to find that most of the people in this survey were in the top half. Because that's what happens. We become aware of our sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. In our condition, we, He reaches out to us. We reach out to Him. We find ourselves forgiven of those sins. And then we get involved in a church. It's not surprising that 89% of the people would be there in some fashion. But what should be shocking to you, as I think it was shocking to me, is to discover how many people stall out in the first half of their discipleship journey. 89% of the population, according to Barna, they stay what I call the justification stage. And I'm not belittling that stage. That's an amazing thing. We should never get over the fact that the surprising, amazing grace of God that, that redeems us and adopts us into his family and transforms our life. But, but so many people stall out, 89% of the population, and they don't realize there's more going on. There's more that God wants to do for us. So that 11% of the people are actually moving on in some kind of a growth in grace. But I even want you to see the percentage of people that move on to what I want to call this last section. And, and we call this a lot of things. We call this maybe the fullness of the Spirit. 
Sometimes we call it the fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes we refer to this as Christ-likeness or entire sanctification. And, and for the purposes of this morning, I just want to say this is what we call holiness. Look at the percentage of people that actually move toward what we would call in our faith entire sanctification. Basically, 1% of the population. What's concerning to me about that is not just that people are not living in the fullness of what God has to bring to them, but John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, when he talked about the Methodist movement, and for that matter, the Church of the Nazarene, he said that we were raised up to emphasize, not, not to be the only church that talks about it, but to particularly emphasize this second half. Whatever we want to call that, the deeper life, the fullness of the Spirit, Christ-likeness, a part of who we are in the Church of the Nazarene, we are one of the, the body of Christ who wants to talk about this part of the Christian faith. And I dare say that a lot of the problems that you and I deal with in the church today, and consequently our challenge with our witness in our culture is because so many Christ followers are stalled out in the first half of their journey of faith and they haven't moved on to the second. Would you agree that a lot of the issues that we deal with could be dealt with in a spirit-filled way if we had more of our people moving toward Christ-likeness? So spiritual formation Whatever you want to call that, discipleship, the fruit of the Spirit, here's what I want you to kind of frame in your mind as we look into the Scripture this morning. Those things are cultivated and they are grown in us over a lifetime of faith that includes three basic things. Number one, God's grace and God's discipline in our lives. And number two, our willingness to submit not only to follow Jesus, but to begin to engage in holy habits that form Christ-likeness in us. And then number three, time. It's just time. So how does that happen? Here's where I want you to take a look at the Scriptures with me. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You still with me? Say amen. amen. Are you sweating yet? Say Amen. Maybe I'm just hot under these lights. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And normally, as you know, I'd probably ask you to stand, but because I want to just walk through this kind of expositionally for a minute, I'm going to keep you seated. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. I kind of threw this out at the last minute on our media folk. They've done a great job, so if it's not on the screen quite yet, just stay with me. You'll have to actually use your Bible for a second. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, someone say therefore. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sins that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So here the writer of the Hebrews is telling us there is a race, there is a journey ahead for us. You don't stop in the first half. There's a journey that's only just beginning. And then verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. How many of you know that a lot of the issues in our family, in our workplace, in our schools could be dealt with if we fixed our eyes on Jesus and not on Facebook? 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the part that you don't have. But now verse 7, look at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? Now, immediately when we use the word discipline here, some of us have an image in our mind that is not what the writer to Hebrews intends. Discipline here is not punishment. Discipline here does not mean that God, God says, go to the corner and think about it for a while. Now, what discipline here means is, is the things that a good parent does to instill into their child ways for them to grow into being a healthy and mature adult. That's the word discipline. So I'm not talking about a spanking. I'm not talking about putting them in a corner. We're talking here about parents who say, you know what? You're not going to eat Doritos past midnight. You're, you're actually going to do your homework. You're actually going to have some chores. That's not punishment. Those are ways to help instill things in your child to help them grow into a fully, into a fully developed and mature human being. This is what we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 8. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They, meaning our earthly parents, they disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that, and this is the part I want you to see, he disciplines us in order that we may share in His holiness. You didn't say amen to that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but that rather they be healed. Now look at the next verse, verse 14. Make every effort. Someone say every effort. To live in peace with the people who agree with, the people who agree with you. No, peace with everyone and to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. Listen, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. Without this holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root causes up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, which is kind of a weird thing to say because when you think about Esau, you don't think about sexual immorality. You think about kind of being a goofball. But who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son? More on that in just a minute. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we all say together, thanks be to God. Amen. All right, so how does all of this happen? What, what does that second half look like? And, and how does that journey progress for us? I want to talk about it as, and kind of frame it in the idea of holiness discipleship. 
And I want us to look at it from a theological perspective. Then we're going to come back and kind of come to the end and look at it from this biblical text for a moment. When someone becomes a Christian, the goal for them is not only for them to learn how to follow Christ, but to actually live Christ-like lives. We call that holiness. That's the third core value of the Church of the Nazarene. We are holiness. One of the things I know about those early Nazarenes, they did not agree on everything. Trust me when I tell you, they didn't agree on everything. But they at least agreed on this point that God is really serious about us becoming a holy people. And that's what drew them together. It, it, it was to say, let's talk about the second half. But what's been interesting to me as a, as a deeply rooted kind of dyed-in-the-wool Nazarene for the last 56 years, basically my whole life, is that while we have definitely been for the concept of holiness, we've had a hard time agreeing by what we mean by that, holiness. In fact, we've had some really good sanctified fights with each other about holiness. Sometimes we love the concept of holiness more than we love the people who disagree with us. But here's the thing, depending on where we were raised and who our teachers were, who our pastors were, whatever, whatever, we have different ways of expressing what we mean by the life of holiness. And here's why. I don't think it's bad that we have different ways of expressing it. Because we have to live in what I want to call the both and of holiness. The tensions that exist between holiness. Now notice I didn't say the conflict of holiness because I don't think holiness is in conflict with itself. But here's what I want you to think about. A dialectical tension happens when what you have appear to be two opposite forces, two things that don't seem to be the same, but they coexist simultaneously. And it doesn't mean this side is right and this side is wrong, but it means that both are right, but they're only both right when they're fully balancing each other. And if you go too far to this side, then, then it suddenly doesn't become right anymore. And you go too far to this side, it suddenly doesn't become right anymore. Those are the tensions. Those are the both ends of holiness. So let me give you two examples of that. In the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that holiness is both instantaneous and progressive. Say this with me. Holiness is instantaneous and progressive it means it's both so holiness is instantaneous this movement into the second part of the of what we call the deeper life it's instantaneous in this important sense it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church if you accepted Christ as a child or if you came to know Christ in your adulthood for most of us, if not all of us, there comes a place in our walk with Christ when we realize that we have a growing relationship with Christ, but, but we have this dissonance in us because we realize we haven't given our entire self to Him. So we haven't emptied ourselves of self. We, we haven't invited the Spirit of Jesus to take full control. We've been forgiven of our sins, but we haven't surrendered all of ourselves to God in a full consecration. And, and here's the thing, this has nothing to do with judgment, this doesn't have anything to do with condemnation, this doesn't mean going to hell. It has nothing to do even if we are in a relationship with Christ, but it's about, am I fully surrendered to His way and to His will? That's what we're really talking about here in the sanctified life. 
And so by the grace of God, we experience a deeper work of God that happens instantaneous. And being fully surrendered to God in that moment, surrender is a moment in time. Surrender itself may be a process leading up to it, but the moment of taking our hands off and being fully surrendered to Him happens in an instant. It's kind of like when you went to teen camp as a kid. You remember you went down to the altar on Thursday night, the last night of teen camp, and you totally committed yourself to Christ? You just surrendered everything you had to Him, and even though you were 16, you didn't know everything your life was going to be about, you surrendered it to Him, and you said, God, give me an undivided heart. And I believe that when you and I prayed those prayers, when we gave ourselves completely over to Him, Something happened instantaneously in a moment. He purified our hearts. He sanctified us. He filled us with His Spirit. God did, a, God did a transformational work in us. We were made holy. John Wesley said it like this, If there's a moment where you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then there has to be a moment when you do. But here's the thing. All of us had to go back home. We had to go back to the same parents we were fighting with. We had to go back to the same churches that we left. We had to go back to the same friends. We went back to the same school. And we had to figure out, how am I going to now grow in the grace of God that purified my heart in that moment? And there was a growth in grace that had to take place for us to live into the experience of what happened in that moment of our full consecration when the perfect love of God filled up our heart. So here's another way to think about it. Christy's coming to the second service, so I can talk about her in the first. Christy and I were married 38 years ago, January 8th, 1983, right over here at Williams Church on Rockwell. And, and we, I remember thinking, at 18 years of age, we were both 18. I have no idea why we did that. We didn't have cable television. It seemed like the right thing to do. And when we got married at 18 years of age, we could not have been more married than we were when we left that church. I remember thinking, as I was walking out of the church and people were throwing rice at us and that kind of thing, and I was putting that 18-year-old uh, woman who was going to be my wife into that car, here's what I thought, well, that really happened. I mean, I'm 18, she's 18, we're fairly healthy. I mean, we could live to be, to be really, really old people. We could be in this for a while, you know. I, I remember thinking, I'm really, really married. And I was so married on that day. And yet, 38 years later, I just want to tell you something. I am so much more married today than I was 38 years ago. We are way more married I mean, you think about everything that's happened in our lives. We've had three kids together. We have six grandchildren. We've had wonderful highs. We've had some lows. We've had a lot in between. We are really, really married. And she's amazing. I'm so much more married now. But you know what? I hope in 20 years from now that I'm going to be so much more married, so much more deeply in love with her, so, much more, so many more experiences than even today. And here's the point of that. We make our commitment to be fully devoted to God to come into that deeper life in that second half. And we could not be more His than we are in that moment. We couldn't be more His. We gave everything we had to Him. 
But what we've just done is we've begun a journey of grace that Eugene Peterson says is a long obedience in the same direction that really entails a growth. So we are sanctified by grace in a moment, but we grow in grace over a lifetime. And spiritual character gets formed in us. The fruit of the Spirit begins to blossom, but you don't get apples and oranges and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. You don't get that in a moment of time. The blossoms are there, but they grow into something. It has to be nurtured. It has to be cultivated. Some of you know that I pastored my very first church in Livermore, California. People think I pastored in California, and they say, man, that must have been really, really liberal country. Well, I pastored in a place where it was a cow town. It's a bunch of ranchers and rodeo people and all of that. We had people that were in the pro bull riding circuit. One of them in my church was a guy named Ron. Ron was a professional bull rider, a big guy, six foot three, 220 pounds, not one ounce of fat on him. He wore those skinny Levi jeans that looked like they get painted on. And he was a rough, tough cowboy. But his life was broken. His marriage was, going, was ending. He wasn't a good dad. He was completely addicted to other things. But God did a transformational work in his life. And Ron was transformed. He was a new creature. And he began the discipleship journey. I told you a little bit about Ron before. I remember the time when Ron came to me a month or so after he became a believer. And he said, Pastor, I want to serve the church somehow. But I don't know how. He said, I'm, I don't think I'd be a good teacher. Or I don't really want to be an usher. And what could I do? And I was trying to think, what could Ron, this baby Christian, do? And the only thing I could think of was to say, you know, we have two services now. What if you were the person who went and kind of cleaned up between services? What if you were the person who, who picked up to make the church feel hospitable to the second service? And I thought, oh, no, am I going to offend him? Ron started crying. He said, Pastor, would you let me do that? You mean I can really serve the church in that way? So he was growing, and Ron would sit right down here in the front row, and, and he would come to church, and he would worship God, and he would praise Jesus. But every time he came to worship in his back pocket, he had this little bulge that was sticking out. It was kind of round. Not only that, but he always had it looked like his lower lip was kind of sticking out. And Ron, just to be sure that, every, that he, he had a cup in his hand. And right there in the front row, he'd be singing songs. He'd tears be streaming down his face. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. <coughs> Into the cup. <laughs> Praise you. You've changed my life. <coughs> Spit into the cup. I remember thinking, I was just a young pastor, but I was thinking, oh, Lord, don't let them get to him. Lord, I'm begging you, don't let the morals police come and just try to tell him he can't come here because he's, you know, dipping skull. And don't let... And I remember every week he'd come and he'd spit into the cup, but one Sunday he came and he didn't have the cup. His lip didn't have anything in it. I even noticed there was just a ring on his back pocket, but it wasn't sticking out. And I went, oh, no, she got to... I mean, he got to him. I said, Ron, Ron, did anybody talk to you? He said, about what? And I said, well, you know, about the skull. And he said, no, not, no. I said, nobody said anything to you. No. Well, well, then what happened? He said, well, you know, I was reading my Bible this week, and I was praying, and, and I'm learning to kind of hear and listen to the voice of the Spirit. And I just sensed like the Lord was saying to me, Ron, do you need that in your life anymore? And he said, well, no, Lord, you've, 
you're my everything now. He said, well, well, why don't you just quit? And I said, so what happened? He said, so I did. How long have you been, at, how long have you been dipping? Since I was 13? And, and just because the Holy Spirit... Yeah, I just said yes. Aren't you glad that we can trust the Spirit to grow us? Ron wasn't everything in that first moment that he was going to be. And praise God that he was in the first half, but he was growing in grace. He was becoming everything that Jesus wanted him to be. Aren't you glad we don't have to be the morals police for God's people? Our sanctification happens in a moment. Our holiness is grown over a lifetime. And listen, I hope that you're as holy as you can be today. I hope that, you, that five years from now and ten years from now, that you're more like Jesus then than you are today, that you grow into that deep, entire consecration of your life. But here's what you've got to know. Holiness is instantaneous, but you can't leave it there. It's progressive. But here's the last thing I want to mention to you. The second thing is, we deeply believe that holiness is both spiritual and practical. It's spiritual in this really important sense, and that's this. It takes the Spirit. You can no more make yourself holy than you can jump 20 feet in the air. You can't clean yourself up. You can't become more like Jesus in your own strength. It requires the grace of God. It requires a work of the Spirit in your life. So you can stop trying to just clean yourself up. But here's the other thing. It's practical. It's not only spiritual, it requires discipline. It requires, it, it, it requires practices. I remember the comedian Yakov Smirnov, he, he said when he first came to the United States from Russia, he was blown away by the incredible variety of products in, in American grocery stores. He said, on my very first shopping trip, as my attempt at being Russian, I saw powdered milk. You just add water and you get milk. And, I, and then I saw powdered orange juice. You just add water and, and, you, and you get orange juice. And then I saw baby powder. <laughs> and I thought to myself, what a country. <laughs> That's funny to say, but here's the thing. You and I live in an instant everything culture. You know, Christy just bought something called Instapot. Apparently, it can make your food five minutes faster than the other pot. How many of you ever been in Panera Bread and see somebody yelling at their laptop because the Wi-Fi wasn't five seconds faster? You and I live in an instant gratification society, and we're all sucked into it. I'm sucked into it. And part of what it's done is it's made us all impatient. And, I, and here's what I want to suggest to you is that, that when we think about our growth in grace and our discipleship, we take on the same thinking. We think we want everything to happen instantly. We want to be, we want to be like Jesus right now. But, but holiness, this second half, is not magic. It's not just one trip to an altar. It takes a lot of patience. Now here's where we want to wrap up. I want to just look at this text for a second. You remember Esau? Esau... He's the twin of another guy named Jacob. And their mother had these two twins wrestling in, in her womb. And she was so disturbed by all the wrestling that she, she cried out to God. And she said, God, why are my twins fighting each other? And he said, you've got two nations in your wombs. 
in your womb. And, 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 and they're going to fight fight for the rest of their life. And even as, as the twins were being born, Esau comes out first and Jacob, it says, was grabbing onto his heel like, no, no, me first. And these boys are so different. Esau's a rough, tough guy. He drives an F-150 with a gun rack. He drinks Red Bull. He's a middle linebacker on his football team. He loves, he loves the outdoors. And his dad loved it. Jacob, he's kind of more into skinny jeans, you know, watches the cooking channel, kind of more of a mama's boy. And these two boys, their, their spirit and their soul are ravaged by the way their, their parents play favorites. His, the mother loves Jacob, the father loves Esau, and they're just really, really bad people. And one day Esau is coming home from a hunting trip, and he's, he hasn't had any luck. He hasn't had anything that he's been able to kill. And he smells some food being cooked at the tent. And there's Jacob. He's stirring up a pot of red beans. And Esau walks up. Give me some of those red beans. And Jacob knows he's kind of got him. Jacob is a deceiver. And so Jacob says to him, what will you give me for this? He says, what do you mean? What do you want? He said, oh, let me think. How about your birthright? Now, the reason some of you aren't laughing right now is maybe you don't know that the birthright was the most important possession that that family could ever have. I mean, it was only given to the firstborn son. It didn't matter if he had 20 children. That was the only thing that could be given was that birthright. And, and Jacob was asking a ridiculous thing. It made no logical sense. It was laughable what he was asking for. But Esau says, okay. And in a moment of time, Esau gives away his most valuable possession for one minute of eating red beans, for one moment of an appetite. I'm going to give away my most valuable possession just for a second of instant gratification. And the reason the writer of the Hebrews uses Esau as an example and he attaches sexual immorality, that's what happens in sexual immorality. You say, how's that happen? Can you imagine that somebody would give up their entire marriage over microdots on a screen? Can you imagine that somebody would, would, would actually give up the, the beauty of a marriage relationship over, over pornography of airbrushed people? You see, nobody does that. Nobody does this. Nobody gives up their most valuable possession. We do it all the time. And the writer to the Hebrews is trying to say, that's the way people think about their spiritual life. They think it's going to happen in an instant, but they don't think about the practices. They, they want to take the route that makes it easiest for them. We want to become like Jesus, but we don't think about what does it mean for me to become a person of prayer? What does it mean for me to be a person who meditates in God's Word? What would fasting mean for me? These spiritual disciplines, these means of grace. What would it mean for me to have to do these things? Because in order for us to move down the second half and to move to a moment of entire sanctification where we have pure love for God and pure love for people, it's going to require holy habits. And when I was... When I was younger, I wanted to be like Tiger Woods. 
I got a hat like Tiger. I wanted to play golf like Tiger. I used to get down on the ground like this and read the greens like Tiger would read the greens. I have no idea what I was looking for, but he did it, so I did it. I wanted to play golf like Tiger. But what I didn't realize was just because I went out and played golf once a week, I didn't know about the hundreds of hours he was practicing. I didn't know that since he was like two years old, he'd been playing golf. I didn't know that he went to the practice range and he hit balls until his hands were bleeding. I wanted to play like Tiger, but I, I wasn't willing to devote myself to the practices of Tiger. And sometimes people look at other people in the church and they look at, they look at sister so-and-so and they say, I want to be like her. She's a saint. Look how patient she is. Look, look, look how loving she is. Look at how much peace she seems to have. I want to be like sister so-and-so. But what we haven't seen is the decades of the holy practices that she's put out into her life of, of time where she spent hours alone with Jesus allowing him to shape her and to create holy dissatisfaction and to dismantle her life and to completely put it back together into something that looked like Jesus. And what I want to simply say to you here today is if you want to move out of that first half, not that it's bad, but if you want to grow into everything that God has for you, it's going to require not just something instantaneous. It's going to have to be a, a lifetime of growing. And it's going to be something that not only God does in you, but it's going to have to be something that you begin to put into practice until the Spirit of Jesus forms you into the person he wants you to be. And the joy and the peace and the fullness of life awaits you. Would you bow your heads? Holy Spirit, as we, as we think about our own lives, we confess there's been moments where we've stalled out, where we have been caught somewhere in that journey of grace, and we've not fully given ourselves to you. We've, we, we've kind of just stopped in justification, but we haven't really pursued the holy life. And Lord, wherever we find ourselves in that spectrum... I just pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us and call us to a deeper walk with you. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then help us to love our neighbor. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.